This morning our topic is fellowship. We are in Hebrews 10. And I want to reemphasize to you what came out in worship. None of you are under condemnation in here. We preach some pretty hard words sometimes. I go out of my way sometimes to make it a little uncomfortable. But I don't ever want to lose the idea that the Lord really is full of mercy and compassion. And what I felt more than anything this morning is Him saying, don't be discouraged, church. It does not matter how you blew it this week. Don't be discouraged because we are in a process of change. So, This last year was a year of beginnings. And I've been talking about this a lot, so some of you will hear this more than once, but it's been on my mind. We began a lot of things in faith. And we're here to see that the church is growing. It's becoming the church that we had hoped it would be. A year ago, I was standing looking at you know two or three people and uh, 50% of the seven or eight that were here had just left. And the Lord spoke to me and told me to enclose this and put chairs for 50 people. Well, we're still not there yet, but you can see we've made progress, and that's a lot like the whole kingdom walk. Mm-hmm. I am not where I'm supposed to be yet, but praise God, I'm not at all where I was either. We're making progress. So I'm excited about that. I believe that this next year is going to be a really neat time. Uh, all of us have a sense of excitement, kind of pregame butterflies about this, this coming year. I think we're going to see some miraculous things. And I encourage you to pray for the church. Pray for each other. Are y'all in Hebrews 10 yet? We're going to start in the 11th verse. And this is not going to be a complicated message today, but I hope it's, I hope it's powerful. I hope it touches you where you are. But you'll be happy. We won't, won't be flipping to uh, Ecclesiastes or Numbers and reading obscure scriptures. This morning, I ought to be very straightforward. Hebrews 10, verse 11. Day after day, every high priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The writer of Hebrews in this passage is teaching something. He, it's obviously titled Hebrews. He's writing it to Hebrew Christians. And they were used to a sacrificial system. For 1,600 years, God had put this in place. And every time somebody sinned, a sacrifice had to be made for the sin. And then once it, that, that sacrifice was just to get you through the day with that sin. Once a year, a high priest would enter into a holy place. This holy place was, if you think of a temple as outer rings, there was a holy place, uh, a most holy place, and the holy of holies. I mean, you started on the outside with where the Gentiles and the women could be, then you moved to just where the men could be, then to just where the Levites could be, then just to where the high priest could be. And the whole idea was once a year somebody would go into the holiest place there was and offer a sacrifice that would get you through the next year. Now, we find out in the Old Testament God could care less about the blood of bulls and goats. That was never what He was after. He was after an obedient heart. He was after a humility that seeks Him. Well, what we learn from this passage is that that sacrifice repeated over and over and over never really took away sins. It was there just to teach the people. But Jesus entered into a holy place once for all time. 
just once. It only had to be done once. It's not done every time we do communion, and we'll do communion next week, as some teach. It was once for all times. And I want you to hear this last part. This ought to encourage you. He said in verse 14, because by one sacrifice He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. If you are being made holy, you're not finished yet. That ought to give you grace. And He knew. He knew when He wrote that you were not finished yet. But He calls you perfect and then says you're being made holy. God calls the things that are not yet as though they were. He declares you by His sacrifice to be perfect. Wow, that's a, that's a... I mean, you talk about a contradiction in terms. You are called by God perfect, then you look in the mirror and see that you're not. Then He clarifies it. He says, well, you're being made holy and you will be perfect. He sees the end of the picture and He announces it. And now what we see is that we're in the progress of it. He also says Jesus is Lord over all. Y'all know what Lord over all means? That means everybody recognizes His Lordship. To be Lord over everything means everything is obedient to you. And Jesus is declared to be Lord over all. We sing it all the time. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. You know, we, at least Carmen, sings it all the time. But it's not true yet. Hebrews says, yet at the present, we don't see everything subject to Him. I say all of this to say we are in a work in progress. But look what he goes on to teach. The whole idea here is that you are being made holy. You are going to be perfected. You're declared to be perfect now. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sins. I want you to get this real clearly. God is imprinting upon you His law and His character and His Spirit and all that He is. He's imprinting it on your innermost being. That's why Christians, when they're first born again, usually go through a terribly legalistic period. You know, anybody that knew me when I was first born again, I would not drive 56 miles an hour. In fact, my honeymoon was 12 and a half hours from where we left travel-wise. It was in Orlando and I was in Baton Rouge. And because it's 12 and a half hours at normal driving speeds, and at that time of year, for some reason, nearly every state had construction the whole way on Interstate 10, I drove 45 miles an hour. I caused more people to sin on that trip, <laughs> driving around me, giving me the one-finger salute and hanging out. You know, it's so funny, Jennifer and I are driving this Saturn, you know, and people are hanging out of their cars, cursing at us as they're going around, you know. But in my heart, I had I thought about what was right, and all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I was willing to do whatever it took to do that, even if it was inconvenient. Now, I have found out since then that God doesn't throw you away if you drive 46 miles an hour. I've even, on occasion, borne the penalty for driving much faster than, uh, than you're supposed to drive and getting a ticket for it. All things are permissible but not profitable, Paul said. But you go through this stage where you're realizing for the first time you have a new set of rules. For the first time, God is teaching you like you would teach a child about what is right and wrong. Now, where we're going with this on the topic of fellowship is, am I the only one that goes a few days and doesn't feel warm fuzzies from Jesus? 
Or do all of you just live in this absolute blissful glee all of the time, feeling as if Jesus is right there with you, patting you on the back? See, I don't. And I, I hope that doesn't lessen me in your eyes. I, I'm not the Pope. I'm not infallible. I don't walk around in the absolute cloud of God's Spirit all of the time. The Bible says that we can, and yet I fall short of that. Uh, I don't. And I found something to be terribly encouraging this week during a time period where I didn't feel backslidden. I didn't feel like I had just uh, crucified Jesus, but I also just didn't feel Him right there. I felt like I had the flu, honestly. I was around some other brothers and sisters, and I realized something. While I was around them, and I listened to them talking, and I heard the kind of things they were doing, and simple things, getting up to go do the dishes or something at my house when instead of waiting for me to get up and go do them, I realized I was with Jesus. See, if you are the body of Christ, if His laws are on your heart, if His mind is being impressed on you, when I spend time with Diana, I'm spending time with Jesus because she's being conformed to His image. If I'm hanging out with David, I spent the day with Jesus. Now, boy, what a responsibility, though. If we're going to be Jesus to each other, it means we have to act like Jesus, doesn't it? But the Bible declares that you're being made holy. You will reach a state of perfection. You know, It's when He returns that the perfection is done. But what I'm trying to tell you is there is power in fellowship beyond what you might think. You know, John F. Kennedy was somebody that, I don't know, he stands out in American history. And he had this idea, and he, he gave it uh, in a public speech. He said, ask not what uh, your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Everybody remember those words? That's a really biblical concept, except it's not for your country, it's for your church. See, people come to church with the idea of, what can I get out of the service today? I hope the preaching's good. I hope the worship is good. I hope Eric doesn't preach too long. I hope there's somebody in children's church to watch my kids. hope the food's good after the service or whatever it is. And where we need to progress as a church is to where we go and we hope to do something for the church. I'm not talking about anything that has to do with this box over here. I'm talking about your life. Okay? And... What began to, to form this in me as I looked at this scripture this morning, what I began to think about was on Wednesday, most everybody was in the church. Not everybody, but most everybody was here. And you know what? It felt complete. It felt whole. There was a different sense of worship. When one or two of you are gone, we notice it. Now, I'm not saying this to put a burden on you about church attendance. What I'm trying to tell you is that in the body, when somebody's gone, it's almost as if a piece of Jesus is missing because he's ordained that we be here. Now, I, I tell you what, the other thing that is true is the people that need to be here the most, who really don't yet have as much to offer to the body as the body does to them, are usually the ones that are here the least. That's just how church works. I've heard it said that you know, the people that are in church 10% of the time are the ones that need it 90% of the time. You know, I'm not saying that to condemn anybody. I'm trying to say we all have a value to bring to the table, and it's because Jesus' mind is imprinted on us. I want to get this as well. Starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, since we have confidence, Christians ought to be confident. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter 
the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is His body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere and with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. What on earth is all that talking about? This was as common to these Hebrews that he was writing to as if I were talking to you about a 4th of July celebration, the fact that there was chicken and watermelon and fireworks. That wouldn't shock anybody. Nothing in this shocked them at all. They understood exactly what he was talking about. Turn with me to Mark real quick. Mark 15. And I'll clue you into what he's talking about. From where you are, you can make a left, but keep your finger in Hebrews because we're going right back there. Mark is the second book in the New Testament. In the 15th chapter of Mark, in the Thompson chain, it's on page 1332, uh, where we'll be. Hmm? Oh, sorry, 1132. Yeah, everybody else is in the Thompson chain. Y'all call out the page numbers. <laughs> I want to read you something. Starting in verse 35 of the 15th chapter. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling on Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Matthew records earthquakes and tombs breaking open. But there was a curtain in the temple that was torn totally in two. Remember we talked about the holy place and the most holy place? Well, this high priest, when he went to the most holy place once a year to make sacrifice for the people. They did a couple things. One is, let's pretend Brad is the priest. He would have on special garments. He would bear stones on his shoulder representative of all of Israel. He would have on his breast uh, piece certain colors that God had ordained. Even the fabric of his garments would uh, be made of a certain fabric, uh, linen, so that he wouldn't sweat, showing that this was effortless as you did the work of God, not his own labor. Uh, his feet were shod a certain way. Everything, his, his head, everything about him was perfectly ordained by God. And then the tradition says that they tied uh, goat thong. Uh, I don't know what the Achilles tendon is called in a goat, but uh, those, Dad might know, they would tie those together as a rope around his foot. And they would put bells. You have the sinews. The King James says sinews. Sinews around his foot and they put bells on him. And that's because this guy that was declared to be the high priest would go into the most holy place with the blood of a perfect lamb. He would pour it on a mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant uh, had cherubim on two sides of it. And in the middle was a gold, pure gold plate. And under that pure gold plate was broken law. The law that Moses threw down and was broken. Those pieces were in there. And what would happen is these cherubim symbolized God's presence because the Bible says 
that God is enthroned upon the cherubim, that He has a chariot throne. It's movable and it searches the earth. God rides upon the presence of the cherubim. Second Samuel 22 says He mounts them and flies. Uh, I don't know how much of that is just Hebrew imagery and how much of it is literal, but the point is this is what it was supposed to represent. Everywhere that ark was, God was above it. So God is above these cherubim and He's looking down upon the broken law that is, is there. And this blood would cover the broken law. You would pour blood on the mercy seat and it would cover the broken law and they would be good for another year. All right, You all follow that imagery? This happened once a year, every year, for almost 1,600 years. But they tied sinew to his foot and put bells on him. You know why? If that priest was not holy, if he had not dealt with his sin accordingly, he'd be struck dead as he entered the presence of God and have to drag him out. At least that was the thought. I don't know whether it ever happened. It's not recorded in the Bible. But that's uh, Jewish thought that has been passed down to us. Now, what we're reading here is that at Christ's crucifixion, when he finished his work, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. There was a curtain to separate the holy from the most holy for a specific reason. God was trying to say, men, you can draw near to me, but only one man can go into the most holy place. And they repeated this over and over and over so that they would be looking for the one man. But once that one man came, he did something spectacular. As that curtain was torn and Jesus said, it is finished, what he was saying was finished is the way to the holiest of holy places is now open for all who will come. That curtain was torn and the temple was rent so that everybody, it said that from, I don't have a picture of it in here, oh, from this view right here in this picture, standing here on the Mount of Olives, that you could look through the eastern gate of the city. Actually, it'd be over here, this being the eastern gate of the city, through the outer court, through the inner court, and into the Holy of Holies. Now, if you were standing there at the place where Jesus uh, ascended, at the place where the resurrection will occur, you could see through those gates, through all the sets of gates, right to where there was a curtain saying, man's vision, man's presence can't go any further. And the man Jesus rent that thing. So, and by the way, this curtain had been built up through the years. They added to it every year so that it got thicker and thicker and thicker. By the time Jesus uh, came around, they said that it was somewhere between six and ten inches thick, the curtain was, showing that all the man's efforts, everything that he was doing, there was still a veil that could not be broken. He was not worthy of something. And Jesus tore that to show you you have a way in to the holy place. No longer would anything stand between you and the most pure part of God's presence. This is why it's such an offense for an institution to say that they are the only way to God. This is why it's such an offense for somebody to say they have to do a special magical last rite spell on you for you to make it to God. Why it is such an offense for somebody to say you have to eat a Jesus pill to make it to God. Or anything else that somebody would say that puts a curtain back between you and God. The reality is now, every person, every single one, has the right to go into the Holy of Holies, provided that one thing be true, Jesus be your high priest. Because He offered once for all Himself as that sacrifice. 
So therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Why is the curtain his body? Because as that curtain was torn, showing the whole world you now have access, Jesus' body was torn at the very same moment. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. This is because this blood of the, bull, of the, the lamb, as you would go to the mercy seat, the high priest would take the blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Also, blood of that same animal for your daily sacrifice would have been thrown in your face as it was killed. Well, now, as we enter into that most holy place, the blood of Jesus is sprinkled on you, not showing you how wretched and guilty you are, but giving you a clean conscience. I tell you this this morning. You remember that our during worship, we, we read Psalm 51. I was telling you, I felt as if God was saying he, he realizes that you fall short and He's still encouraging you to come towards Him. We're supposed to be able to enter the presence of God fully assured and in faith. This means you're not looking at yourself as something that is less than. You're not looking at yourself as still unworthy. Some of my uh, Pentecostal brothers and sisters that love the Lord and do things probably much more rightly than I do in many areas, give me the impression that they think they are still not worthy all of the time. The Bible says that we enter into that uh, place through a new and living way, fully assured and through faith. Now, as I'm telling you all of this, think about how this should present you. If you wake up every day realizing that you now have access to the very throne of God and that you are declared to be perfect though you're only being made holy and that there's no longer anything that separates you from God and you are fully assured of this, you think you'd be a joy to be around? You think that you would... 4,000 years of human history went by with men striving for this one point in history and every man falling to sin and every man submitting to death, every single one. And now we have a way to get back to God. That's the story of the Bible, how man was separated from God and how God made a way for the reunion to occur. You have been made new. If you really believe that, you're fun to be around. And not just fun to be around. When I'm down, I can't help but have you pick me up. You may not even mean to. You may not realize you're doing it, but just by being around Cassidy and the smile on her face and the overcoming attitude, all of a sudden the problem that I had that I didn't think I could get over, I feel encouraged and all of a sudden I think, I, I can. Christians ought not be dragging around with their bottom lip on the ground. And most of you are not. I'm not, not telling you you're doing something wrong. I'm telling you that we are supposed to be the fragrance of life. And the only reason some Christians aren't is we don't understand who we are. Because you screw up sometimes. Because there are periods in your life where you don't do what you ought to do, we sometimes stay beat down with this funk that we ought not have. The devil is right there whispering in your ear, accusing you, telling you you are no good, telling you that they know that you're no good. 
may be telling you that you're going to be exposed as being no good. And we forget that 1 John tells us the accuser of the brethren has been cast down. And Romans 8 says there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Church is not to teach you how bad you are. It's to teach you how righteous God sees you if you just will embrace Him. And you all are embracing Him. So how on earth could we walk around not feeling good? Well, it's because we need to grab hold of the assurance that we have. Not insurance. There's a difference. Insurance is something that you pay for so that when there's a disaster, you're bailed out. And some people approach God like that. Insurance. Lord, look, I'm in jail. I'd like to redeem my get-out-of-jail-free card. Would would you help me with our holy insurance policy? And we know about how well that works. The fruit never bears out. But in an assurance policy, what happens is you are certain He's who He said He is, and you act as if that's true, and you have every reason to be confident because He shows Himself to be with you. When you think back on the year 2004, I mean, just think back on it. Were there trials? If you can't nod your head, yes, you're not being honest. Of course there were. Many of us lost jobs. Many of us have struggled with spouses. Many of us have had financial troubles. Many of us have had health troubles. You know, I mean, we. this morning my wife and I knelt right here before everybody got over here and prayed and cried with tears because she felt overwhelmed. Is that because that she's weak? I don't think so. She's one of the strongest women I've ever met. It's because that's part of the Christian walk. But before long, the bent knees turned into straightened legs, rolled their shoulders back, and is fully assured that God's strength will help her accomplish what she needs to do today. No longer beat down, feeling like a failure, feeling like she can't, but certain, certain that He will help her. That's how we enter into that holy place. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. How many times have we taught on water lately? You know, the wells of salvation, the tamarisk tree marking the well, the woman at the well, all the times in John 7, we're going to get him crying out, Jesus crying out, if any man thirsts, let him come and drink of me. All of this about the water. You know why? All through the Bible, two things were used to cleanse people, blood and water. Two things were evident at the crucifixion and all the writers pointed out, blood and water. This was imagery to get us to understand this act, clinging to Jesus, cleanses you. Now, if you've embraced Jesus and you've had your heart sprinkled with His blood and you've had your body washed with His water in a figurative sense, how dare us walk around acting as if we're guilty? You can't. Even if your heart condemns you, Jesus is bigger than your heart, you speak to it and say, no. What Jesus did for me was enough. I refuse to be condemned. I refuse to listen to the enemy. I refuse to be downcast because that would make Jesus lesser. That would make His work ineffective. You realize sometimes when we dwell in our pity parties and we look down upon ourselves, what we're really doing is trampling Jesus' sacrifice through the mud as if it wasn't enough. Earlier we read in verse 18, and where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. If you have been forgiven through the work of Jesus, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. This is why we don't tie those little metal hooks to our bodies like the Hindus do and in some parts of the world the Roman church does. 
This is why we don't flail ourselves with whips when we sin. This is why there is no penance. You know, so many Hail Marys, so many novenas, go build this or that or give this or that. It's why you don't carry the cross on the Via del Rosa on your knees, kissing the ground and stomping. There is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Meaning there's nothing that you need to do except embrace the high priest. That runs kind of contradictory to our spirit, though. You want to make it up when you do something wrong, don't you? You want to punish yourself. A little, and, hey, how about somebody else? You're mad at your spouse a little bit. You want to punish them a little bit, even if you forgive them, don't you? You want to make sure that Brad understands just how bad he hurt you, so you're going to hurt him a little while. Now, there's no sacrifice for sin that needs to be made. Not forced on somebody else's part and not on your part. We've all been made new. Every one of us. When you begin to view salvation in the right way, you start to be a blessing to people. You can't help but be a blessing to people. Having said all of that, the writer goes on in verse 23 to really what our topic is today. I mean, really what I'm hoping you get out of this. It says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. If you hold firmly to this hope we profess, you will be spurring one another on. You say, well, how do you do that? Let's look at some ways in the Scripture they did it. Turn with me to Romans 11. You'll be making a right. And Romans 11 in the Thompson chain is on page 1259. Did I say making a right? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm dyslexic this morning. Mm-hmm. Making a left, page 1259. Now, this is out of context. <laughs> What I'm, I'm reading, but the point is still there. We're considering how we may spur one another on towards good works, right? Towards love and good works. By holding firmly to the hope that we profess, we're going to spur one another on. Well, how did Paul do that? In Romans 11, he has just laid out ten chapters of why Israel, why the uh, Hebrew Christians were not superior for receiving the law, but were blessed. Why Gentiles have now been made co-heirs with Israel and all of Israel seems to be stumbling. I mean, that's that's really what he's laid out and now he's going to remind the Gentiles Israel's not stumbled beyond recovery. And listen to what he says in the 13th verse of chapter 11. I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? That's a mouthful in itself, but what I want you to get is Paul thought of his every action in ministering to others as provoking people to envy. Envy of what? What were they supposed to be envious of? Of that way of life. They're supposed to want it. In the King James, the Scripture that says, uh, let us consider how we may spur one another on. You know what a spur is. You know, that's where you get spurred. King James says, let us consider how we may provoke one another 
on towards love and good deeds. And both are the same thing. Paul made much of his ministry all of his life within the attempt that in showing love to Stacy, in showing warmth to Stacy, she was hoping to provoke Brad to show love to people. Hoping that your life would be an example that would encourage and urge others to do that. Have you never been around somebody? And look, we're so prideful most of the time. We would never say, I want to be more like them. But have you ever been around somebody and thought, yeah, I wish I could handle things that way. I wish I could do that. There's a guy that had a really harmful influence in my life. But one thing that he did do very well that I admire is when he was around people, he made them feel good about themselves. See, I tend to find fault with people before I find anything else. Does that surprise y'all? I tend to measure people right away against whatever standard and see weakness. I have to work to see people as Jesus does because I'm a work in progress myself. I suppose that's because on some kind of level, especially lost and I'm working out of it, I needed to bring others down that I could be lifted up. Now I'm learning how to lift others up while I'm being pushed down and the kingdom says that will bring you to the front of the table. It's different, different the way that it works. But when I was around that, I thought, golly, I wish I had a more positive outlook on life. That is spurring one another on to love and good works. This is all back on the topic of, do I go to church today or not? I mean, I don't feel good. Uh, my kids are being bad. It's such a long ways. Eric's probably going to preach a long time. I will fall asleep. I mean, I don't know if I could get anything out of it today. What if the purpose is not for you to get something out of it? What if the purpose is for the person sitting on your right or left to get something out of you? See, the fellowship of the saints is not about the leader. It's not about the pastor spoon-feeding everybody. It's about the fellowship of the saints. You know, in, in, in synagogues, which were the forerunner of the church, in fact, I was on Masada in Israel, and on top of Masada there was a synagogue. And do you know that in the synagogue, the way that they did the worship, were there were benches, kind of, I mean, obviously not folding chairs. I mean, this is out in the middle of the desert, but there were benches. And... There was kind of a natural slope backwards, you know, so that the rear benches were higher than the front benches. There were walls that were around, so we have the semblance of what we would look at as a church building. And then there was this hole. I mean, literally stepped down into a hole, chest deep. I was thinking, wow, a baptismal? You know, what is that? No, it's where the speaker stood. The speaker stood in the hole. Now, I listened to all the people around me say, oh, this is because a voice will naturally rise and this was for proper uh, sound. Acoustics. They were saying it was for acoustical benefit. It was not for acoustical benefit. It was for one reason. The guy who's speaking is supposed to be humble, number one. And secondly, the fellowship's about the people out there, not the man. Now, what have we done? What have we done? What do, when you walk into church, you guys are lower than the speaker. In fact, in the big churches... He is so high up there that if you get down at the stage, you have to jump like you're waving to a rock star to get up there. You know, you have to ascend the steps to be on the same level with the great man of God who wants your money. <laughs> I'm teasing. Uh, that's totally opposite of the way God set this up. Because fellowship is not... I'm supposed to encourage you, something I say should spur you to live it, 
And your lives should encourage each other. When I think back upon the last 12 years of Christianity, it was nothing that a mentor, that an apostle or a preacher or a pastor in my life said to me that made me grow. It was the interaction with the other saints. I was fortunate enough to enter into the kingdom with people that were confident in what Jesus was doing in their life. And it caused me to be confident. I was fortunate enough to be around people that worked at overcoming rather than submitting to weaknesses. And it caused me to want to overcome. In the body, there's no competition. You don't try to be better than somebody else. But yet the Word says, spur and provoke one another on. So what is that if not competition? The one thing you're allowed to compete in is to see who can be the most like Jesus. And if that's Stephen in this group then that makes Matthew want to be more like Jesus and Stephen. And it makes Eric want to be more like Matthew who's trying to be more like Jesus and Stephen. See, this is how we can all imitate each other's way of life and how you grow from the fellowship. You know, sometimes we think, oh, I don't need to be there. They don't need me. You know, or I don't need them. You know, we need each other for this sake. And it's not just this church, it's every church. One reason I'm an advocate of meeting in homes, like, and one day I hope we're too big to meet in a home, but I want the principle to be there, like the book of Acts, is because you have a chance to really interact with each other's lives. If you just go and you're a part of a crowd, if you just sit on the back row and nobody knows who you are, how can this work? How can you be encouraged by Jesus in somebody that you don't know at all? That when they leave there, they're pulling the toenails off of their kids, but they sat next to you in church. You know? I remember I was in a church in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and the couple that always sat next to us, I mean, you don't have people sit in the same places in church, that just happens. I find out like three years later was a child molester. And I mean, had been a child molester in the church and in the church before that, and had been a child molester most of his life. Do you think we really knew each other well? No, we just sat next to each other in church. That's not fellowship. Now, I'm not telling you that that guy's beyond help. I'm telling you that church was not a church. It was a pile of building materials that had not yet risen to be a house. Amen. See, what makes this a house is when the studs are spaced properly, when the electricity is run in the right way, when the rafters are put together at the right angles, when the uh, felt paper and the shingles are laid on top of each other in the right place where all the building materials know their place and function together for the benefit of everything. Then the building rose to be a house. A collection of people sitting in one place is not any more the church of the living God than a pile of building materials as a house. It has the potential to be the church. It has the potential to be the house. But it's not yet. When it becomes that is when every person begins to settle in and find out what their role is. Romans 12 teaches us, if your gift is encouraging, then encourage. If your gift is serving, then serve. If your gift is generosity, then be generous. If your gift is administrating, then administer. He teaches that. And each member submits to the body for the good of all. Each one of you has gifting. You need to come into this place this year thinking, How can I serve the rest of the body by using my gifting? And friends, don't get trapped in some kind of false humility. It's not wrong for Matthew to stand up here and play guitar because he can. That's not prideful. 
If he stands up and says, I want to lead you all in worship, that's not him being prideful. That's him using his gifting. Well, by the same token, if Stephen says, I want you all to come to my house and I want to feed you all, that's not Stephen trying to show us what a nice house he has. That's Stephen using the gift of hospitality that is on him in Darnell's. And we need to do those things. And you need to look for what that is in you. And you know what? It encourages everyone. To the point where one day we're worshiping, we look and go, where's Mandy? It feels empty. There's 106 other people, but it feels empty because Mandy's not here. Where's the little spark plug that bounces around in worship and makes us all feel excited? Jesus' little aerobics instructor. You know? Where is that? See, we have that role. Let us consider how we may spur one another on. Now, in Romans, we saw that Paul did it by making much of his ministry. Turn to 2 Corinthians. A lot of ways to be spurred on. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8. This is on page 1287 in the Thompson Chains. I could quit preaching the Thompson Chain Gospel, huh? I think I'm pretty slowly winning. Almost everybody in here has a Thompson Chain. <laughs> in the TC. Preston's going to get a CD and misunderstand it, and he's going to think I'm saying in the PC. <laughs> okay, in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He was telling one church, hey, I'm telling you to do this. Not so much because I want your money. I want to test the sincerity of your love against the way the other churches are. You think at first glance, that seems, Paul, what are you doing? You know, as, as parents not to compare our children one against the other, what's he talking about? And is that right to do so? Literally what he's saying is, I want to give you the opportunity to serve God in the same way that the other churches have so that y'all can see each other serving God and be encouraged. And i tell you what else it does. Have you ever handled the situation only to find out brother or sister on your left or right was in the same situation and when you hear how they handled it versus how you handled it, you're ashamed? Yeah. yeah. See, you can spur one another on in a lot of ways. Uh, there have been times in my life where I was really proud of the way that I thought I handled the situation because I didn't sin. And then I would hear how Brad Lively in the very same situation not only didn't sin, but ended up praying for the person in the parking lot. You know? And I would think, oh, I still have so far to go. That's spurring one another on. That's what was happening here. He, he had just got through blasting this church and encouraging them and then said, hey, look, guys, Jesus became poor so that he could make you rich, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to be compared with the other churches in the way that you serve God in this one matter. Now, I guess because he founded the church, he could do that. I sure wouldn't walk into somebody else's church and do that. But this was for the purpose of them comparing and looking to see, are we striving to serve God as much as everybody else? That's spurring one another on. When Darnell and Cassidy go to the store, they ought to, both be looking for an opportunity in that store to be a blessing. And if uh, Cassidy notices that Darnell is uh, 
being kind to somebody who's ugly, it ought to make Cassidy want to be kind to them who's ugly. I told you I was in Chick-fil-A the other day and somebody wanted to fight. <laughs> this thing's followed me for years, but I've had a reprieve for a while. You know, I thought it was because I was getting older and you know, losing my, maybe I was less threatening to people. Well, this guy was insulting to Christy, who was with us, insulting to my children, insulting to her children, and then just is blasting me when I walk through the door, you know? And when I look back on how the kids handled that, I mean, I think we did all right. We thank you for pointing out that our children needed supervision. I sure appreciate it, and God bless you. But when I look back on what the kids did, Olivia, the Sutherland's child, Walked right up to their little boy, hugged him and kissed him, you know. Gabriel walked right up to the guy who was threatening me and goes, and then sat down right there and just stared at him. Said, Dad, he's being mean, you know. Those kids were as loving to those people as could be. Now, I'm not telling you that we should have done that. I'm just telling you that interaction with adversity next to saints teaches saints how to act. You know, it's like the little boy that he was crying and it was dark in his room and he said, Daddy, Daddy, come here, come here. I said, what is it? He said, I'm scared in the dark. You know, very spiritual pastor-like father says, you know, child, don't you know Jesus is with you? Well, yeah, Daddy, but I need somebody with some skin on him. You know, he couldn't see Jesus. He could see his daddy. He needed to know from somebody that he could see that it was going to be all right. Well, we're Jesus with some skin on Him. When we endure trials next to each other, I can see how you handle it. I don't have to go research it in the Word. I don't have to feel it in a worship service. I can see it. And this spurs one another on. That's 2 Corinthians 8. Turn to 2 Corinthians 9. We're going to close here real soon. In 2 Corinthians 9, starting in uh, verse 1, There is no need for me to write to you about the service to the saints, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. Your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. Have you ever seen Christians get together from other churches? You know? I've been at Promise Keepers meetings. I've been at large church conventions, those kind of things. And when one church comes in and they are excited and enthusiastic in worship, all of a sudden everybody else starts to stand up and starts to worship. And when a few on the front row are clapping and swaying, all of a sudden it's contagious and it starts their enthusiasm spurs the other to action. There's a natural tendency in us to find the chair on the back row to sit and to cross our arms and be safe and cool. But when somebody comes in that is just willing to be a total fool right next to you, and is clapping and is in love with Jesus and is crying and is doing I don't mean an emotional show. I mean they are worshiping sincerely. All of a sudden, the person who's sitting here that sincerely loves Jesus but maybe wasn't handling that situation right is spurred to action. Being around one another, our eagerness will spur one another to action. It's why we... Can't forsake fellowship. Turn with me back to Hebrews and we'll close this message. Verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly. Boy, we couldn't say that enough. Unswervingly to the hope we profess. 
For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. He says, let us not give up meeting together, but let us encourage. Isn't it interesting that he relates encouragement to meeting together? But when you get discouraged in the walk, what is the first thing you think of doing? Not going to church. As soon as you get a little discouraged, the first thing you start to do is think about all the reasons you should stay home. Now, why do you think that is? There's a devil who opposes you. And he knows that over there you will find encouragement. So he places himself between you and the encouragement and tries to isolate you. Nearly every person who is demonically afflicted in the Bible, not that that's the case here, but that's an extreme case, was drawn off into a solitary place. Catacombs, tombs, outside the town, always a solitary place. That's because that's where Christians are vulnerable. That's where people are vulnerable. Jennifer was attacked this morning. You know why? She was nauseous. She was pregnant. She's tired. The house was a wreck and we faced a lot of work before the service. That's why the devil was right there discouraging. He looks for an opportune time. He came to Jesus in the 40th day of a fast. And when he couldn't whip him there, the scripture in Luke says he looked for a more opportune time. After Jesus had been kept awake three days and beaten to the point of death, that's when he showed up again. Now, if that was true of Jesus, the devil is searching your life the same way the Holy Spirit searches your life to strengthen you, looking for opportune times. We need to be wise about that. We need to realize that there are times when we're tired and we're more prone to be carnal. There are times when you're uh, discouraged and more prone to be carnal. And the solution for that is not to withdraw from fellowship, it's to embrace it. It's, it's the same thing. I told Jennifer this morning, I, I'm sorry I keep using her. She's not in here, so I can't. I said, sweetheart, you need to go into the church, spend a few minutes. I watched the kids go pray. And she looked at me, and I could see in her eyes, you know, that was just not what she wanted to hear. And I, I, God is my witness. It was not a, a, you know, you just need to go pray. I mean, I meant it from a sincere standpoint because I knew this message has been working in me. I knew. When you feel that natural resistance to the Word, to prayer, to worship, you have to learn to do the opposite of your inclination and embrace it. If what you feel in your flesh is to smack David, you need to run and hug David and make yourself do it. If what you feel is, I don't want to pray, then you need to force yourself into prayer. And by submitting to God and resisting the devil, he will always flee. From you, I tell you, when that guy threatened me at Chick-fil-A and repeatedly, not nearly as much as at one time would have been there. But there was a thought of, I know how to solve this very quickly, you know. I mean, we're not talking about very impressive people, okay. This was, this was not an NFL linebacker. But when that thought hit, the next word out of my mouth, because God is training me, was, God bless you. Thank you so much. When my inclination was to be aggressive, I learned to be aggressive in Jesus. 
This is how forceful men lay hold of the kingdom. When you want to strike, love. When you want to be sharp with your tongue, be kind. This is part of the Christian training. And as you see your brothers do it, you'll do it. You know, have you never noticed? Uh, I've, Jennifer noticed about me a long time ago. I'm a much better husband and a much better Christian when I'm surrounded by Christians. You know, I would come home from working with the um, construction crowd all day. And I had a little bit of that construction mentality on. Even if I was godly with them, by the time I was home, I just wanted to let my guard down, you know? And I was gruff. And I could be mean. But if, if Matthew had been there with me, and he lived with me about half the time back then, if Matthew was there with me, oh no, every word was seasoned just right. We spurred one another on in that regard. Some of it is, you don't want your Christian brothers and sisters to see you acting a fool. That's good. That's good. If, that's, if you don't see them when they're around, have them around as much as you can until you've trained yourself. You know, this not AA and uh, group sessions, all those are all based on this principle. When you're around other people who are doing it right, you, it's contagious. Well, let's take advantage of that in the kingdom. They're mimicking the church. The church is not mimicking them. or They're mimicking the principles the church is supposed to live by. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Can you believe this was in 30 or 40 years of Jesus' life on earth and already people were going, I pretty well got this Christian thing down. Uh, I don't need to go meet with the Richards. I mean, you know, we just met with them last month. <laughs> you know, I don't need to hang out with the P. Rose or the Stevens or the Halls, you know. And that spirit of division was already there because the devil knows if he can isolate, he can pick off. I mean, that's the reality. If you can be isolated, you can be picked off. And that is any human being. You ever wonder how pastors end up doing very, very well, building a church with fire and enthusiasm, and you can see they're sold out for God, and then you hear that they're sleeping with a secretary or something? It all, Even if they're preaching... Even if they're surrounded by church life, they've withdrawn from intimacy with people. You know, they're not praying with the same people they've always prayed with. Their life's not open. All of a sudden, they start to withdraw and become somewhat aloof. And that happens. Sin does that. And you say, well, they did that because they were in sin. No, they were subject to sin because they did that. You know, that's how that... that and I'm not just talking about pastors. That's everybody's life. You know? The husband that stops going to church and starts spending more time on the deer stand, slips a little further and a little further and a little further away. And then all of a sudden there's tension between he and the wife and nobody can figure out why. <laughs> Does it take a rocket scientist? Okay, we're going to read this in close. It says, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Friends, the further you get in Christianity the more you see world events escalating, 150,000 people dying in a single event, the more it's important that we huddle together, we encourage one another so we can go out and face the problems of the day, so we can be the church. If you are having a problem and that problem is trying to keep you out of fellowship, run to fellowship. And if it's a persistent thing, pull somebody aside that you trust. Somebody that you think can keep a confidence, and that's important. Somebody not given to gossip. And said, brother, sister, I'm having this problem. Would you pray with me? 
See, each man's supposed to carry his own load in the kingdom. But the scripture also says to help one another carry the load. So use the fellowship for that reason. You know, that's what, that's what it's there for. And we'll begin to be the church. I believe we got a great start. I'm excited about 2005. You know, this is a good time in our lives. When I look back at 2004, I'm excited, but I think 2005 is going to be even better. I want to encourage you to not just here, meet in your homes, meet everywhere. Get together with people. Let this be your family. I can tell you, outside of these families here, there's, not any, there's nobody that I would rather spend time with other than people that are right here today. Even when you hear me tell stories about Brad Lively and Preston Colesnell, this is my family. They're now my extended family. I like to see them the way kids like to see grandparents, you know. But you guys are every day. You're our fellowship. Stand up. Let's pray.